from the 18th century preacher and theologian Jonathan Edwards. He said that true gratitude, or thankfulness to God for his kindness to us, arises from a foundation laid before, a foundation of love to God for what he is in himself. To say that another way, we are thankful not just for the gifts that God gives to us, but we are thankful for God himself. And then when we practice that thankfulness for God, I think it better it enables us to better recognize when we do receive gifts and blessings from him. And we're actually going to see an example of this with our passage today as we look at the story of David and how David desired to honor and express his love for God and ended up being the one who was blessed in return. But before we begin, as we always do, we need to recognize that we cannot hope to understand God's word without the help of the Holy Spirit. So let's take a moment to pray. Heavenly Father, we are gathered here today for you. We recognize that no gift and no blessing and no good thing in this life compares to you. And we recognize that no good thing can be fully appreciated apart from you. And so this morning, by your grace, we seek to understand your word and allow it to impact our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today marks the third Sunday of our extended Advent series here at New Life Church. Extended because we do Advent for eight Sundays instead of the usual four. In our first extended Advent message two weeks ago, Sarah reflected on her love of stories at Christmas time. And we looked at a story from the Bible, the story of the Exodus, and how God freed his people from slavery in Egypt, and how that pointed us all toward our Lord and Savior, Jesus. And Sarah also talked about some of the great fictional stories of the 20th century. And she mentioned stories like The Hobbit, The Lord of the Rings, Star Wars. Hopefully everybody has at least a little bit of familiarity with one of those stories. As I thought about these stories and some of the other great stories as I prepared for this sermon, I saw another common element in them. Sarah gave us four common elements through, through those stories. And I think there's another one that's relevant for us today. Many times these great stories start with a variety of characters, and they know nothing about one another. In fact, oftentimes they don't even know that each other exists. But as the story progresses, we see their individual lives and their individual stories intersect. And they intersect into a single story. And as a result of that intersection, their lives are forever changed. Today's passage, as we're going to see, is one of those intersection of stories. We have one of the most well-known people in the Bible, David, king over all of Israel, and said to be a man after God's own heart. And here we'll see David's story is going to intersect with God's story, specifically the story of God's redemption of his chosen people. And so hear God's word as we look at this intersection. 2 Samuel chapter 7, starting, I'm going to start in verse 1. After the king, David, was settled in his palace, and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am, living in a house of cedar, while the ark of God remains in a tent. Nathan replied to the king, Whatever you have in mind, 
Go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. But that night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I have been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of the rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth. And I will provide a place for my people Israel, and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build the house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with the rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me, and your throne will be established forever. Nathan reported to David all the words of this entire revelation. This is the word of our Lord. So I mentioned a few minutes ago that this passage is an intersection of stories, and I think it'll be helpful for us to look at those stories individually before we see how they intersect. So first we have the story of David. As we said, he's one of the most well-known, also one of the most well-documented characters in the Bible. His story goes throughout the books of First and Second Samuel, and out of the 150 Psalms, about half, 73, are attributed to David as the author. And many stories from David's life are familiar to us. How David was called in from watching over the sheep, and he was identified and anointed to be Israel's second king. How David was made an armor-bearer of Saul, and before he became a soldier, he was the only one in Israel who was willing to stand up to Goliath. And then, of course, David defeated Goliath with a single stone. Later, we know that David lives kind of on the run from Saul. Saul was seeking to kill David because he was a threat to his throne. And David even had a couple opportunities of his own to kill Saul, easy opportunities, which he, fail, he sorry, failed, refused to do because he did not want to kill the Lord's anointed king. Later, of course, David would become king over some of the tribes of Israel, and the rest would soon follow. He would take the city of Jerusalem, which was not previously part of the kingdom, make it the capital city, and bring the Ark of the Covenant there. And of course, many of us are familiar 
of the story with the affair of Bathsheba and the subsequent murder of her husband, Uriah. There's a lot more that we could know about David's life, but these are the familiar highlights and lowlights uh, for most of us. And in terms of the chronology, today's passage occurs after the time when David was king over all Israel. He had established the city of Jerusalem as the royal city and brought the Ark of the Covenant to rest there. But this happens before David's affair with Bathsheba. The second story that is going to intersect with David's is God's story, and specifically God's plan for the redemption of his people. As we read through the Old Testament, we can understand really all of it by looking at this history of redemption through the promises or the covenants that God makes with his people. There's a lot of them. Here's a handful of them that are commonly referenced. We have the covenant that God made with Adam and Eve, and this was after the original sin. And this was a covenant that the seed of Eve, who we now know to be Jesus, would destroy the serpent. We have the covenant that God made with Noah and his family, that never again would he send a flood to destroy the earth. The Abrahamic covenant, to give Abraham descendants as numerous as the stars, to make a nation out of them and to give them a chosen land. And the covenant God made through Moses with the entire people, the Israelites, which was a covenant of works and obedience. Ten Commandments was a part of this. And this established the laws for God's chosen people to live under as his rule as king. And so in this particular scene from 2 Samuel, as David's story and the story of God's redemption for his people intersect, we actually see the introduction of a new promise or a new covenant from God. And it's known as the Davidic covenant. And as a result of this intersection, David's story is forever changed. So we'll dive a little bit deeper now. I started off this morning with that quote from Jonathan Edwards, which, paraphrased version, true gratitude or thankfulness to God arises from love to God for who he is. I think David is one of the best examples in the Bible of a person who loves God for who God is. He is, after all, said to be a man after God's own heart. So how does David show the love that he has for God? Well, in this case, he desires to build God a temple. And God's response is kind of surprising. God says, no, you will not. This reflects a couple things. First thing is that God doesn't need a temple to live in. And David wasn't the one who was chosen to build this for God. That would be done by somebody else. <clears throat> God says no here because there's something else that he has in mind for David a blessing beyond anything that David might have expected. And simply put, that promise or that blessing from God is to turn David's offspring into a never-ending line of kings. Going back to the scripture, starting in verse 12, we read, When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build the house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me, 
and your throne will be established forever. As we look back, we know that this promise from God speaks, at least in part, of David's son Solomon. At this point in the story, Solomon is yet to even be born, but he would be the one to receive the kingdom from David. Solomon would be the one to build the temple and who would be like a son to God. Solomon would receive punishment for his sins, his worship of idols, but despite his sins and his idol worship, God's love and the kingdom would never be taken from Solomon. And yet, as we look at this promise, we recognize that there are parts of the promise that Solomon did not fulfill, nor did any of the other kings of Israel or Judah. God promised that the kingdom would be established forever, but we know the story goes, several hundred years after David's reign, the temple was destroyed, the people were exiled to Babylon, and the line of kings ends. It's no secret, we know, looking back, that the fulfillment of this promise came from a different son of David, one who was also God's own son, and of course that's Jesus. Jesus' throne is the one that is established forever, and we know that Jesus' kingdom will have no end. And so Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. So this promise that God makes to David changes the, the story and the legacy of David forever. David, as an ancestor of Jesus, is more than what he otherwise would have been. He's more than just the second king of Israel, more even than just the first among many kings in his own genetic line. <clears throat> Through David's offspring, the promised Messiah would indeed come and he would rule from the throne that God established. And this would be a throne over all of creation, not just a nation of Israel. And so David's story and his legacy are forever changed because of this intersection with God's eternal purpose. Our story as well is forever changed because of how it intersects with God's eternal purpose. Jesus' righteous life and his sacrificial death provide the way that God's story intersects with our own. And because of that intersection of our story with Jesus, we are brought from death into life. We are freed from the chains of our enslavement to our sin. And we too are made a part of God's royal family. Oh, what a blessing it is for our lives to intersect with God's plans of redemption. There's another element to intersecting stories, whether from the Bible or from other works from human authors. And that's the, the effects of intersecting stories are usually unexpected. We can see this with David's story. David went into this interaction with Nathan offering to build a temple. But everything that happened next was unexpected. David didn't expect his offer to build a temple to be rejected. He didn't expect to be the first of a line of kings which would succeed him. He didn't expect that the promised Messiah would come through his offspring. And once he knew that there would be a line of kings that came from him, he probably didn't expect that this promised line of kings would end, the temple to be destroyed and the kingdom to be conquered and people sent to live in exile. All of this was unexpected for David. 
Generations later, when Jesus did come, and as he walked this earth, God's story directly intersected with the story of many in first century Galilee and Judea. This is a people that waited for the coming of the Messiah for many generations. And yet, when he did come, what they saw was unexpected. They expected a conquering king, somebody who was going to overthrow their Roman oppressors. What they got was somebody that came initially as a baby and whose family had to flee to Egypt to escape King Herod. They got a king who would be described as meek and humble and not possessing any majesty of appearance, a king who grew his kingdom by humbling himself, serving others, and seeing to their needs rather than conquering others in battle. A king who found victory and freed his people by his own death, a criminal's death on a cross, despite his own innocence. So Jesus wasn't who the Israelites expected, and yet Jesus is the Messiah. And for those of his time who believed in his message, Jesus' disciples and others, their lives were completely changed as a result of their intersection with God's story. This idea of expectation is an important one for the season of Advent that's commonly used to describe this season. During Advent, we recall the expectations of God's chosen people as they looked for and awaited their promised Savior. And today we have our own expectations for another coming of Jesus, just as he promised to finally defeat the powers of sin and darkness and bring his kingdom to fullness. And of course, we can have these expectations because we know that this is what God has promised. But just like those who lived during the time of the exile, and just like those who were alive when Jesus came, what we see doesn't always match what we expect. We live in a time that D.A. Carson has called the time and space between the fall of man and the new creation. So this means that we enjoy the down payment of God's promise. Jesus has come. The Holy Spirit dwells within us as believers. But we know that the full kingdom is yet to be realized. And so as we look around us, we see sin and injustice and death all around us. And these things at times make us doubt. Is this really what God promised? How should we respond when we see those things and when we doubt? Well, let's look at a few examples from the Psalms. Psalm 89, which Aaron read from earlier, records the doubts of a man named Ethan the Ezraite. Ethan, don't know a lot about him. He apparently lived sometime after King David and probably when the the kingdoms were divided and going into exile. Ethan says of God's promise to David, but now you have rejected him and cast him off. You are angry with your anointed king. You have renounced your covenant with him. You have thrown his crown in the dust. So this shows us that what Ethan sees around him, what he's experiencing, does not match what he expects based on the promise of God to David that his kingdom would endure forever. And yet in this psalm, Ethan also says, I will sing of the Lord's unfailing love forever. Young and old will hear of your faithfulness. Your unfailing love will last forever. Your faithfulness is as enduring 
to the, as the heavens. So even though Ethan had his doubts based on what he saw around him, his knowledge of who God is and the promises of God allowed him to overcome that doubt. We also sang the song, I Will Wait For You, which is based on Psalm 130. A couple lines from that psalm. Out of the depths I cry to you, Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. So while we don't know what it is, we can recognize that the psalmist here is experiencing something, going through something that he does not expect based on God's promises. And yet, the psalmist also writes, I wait for the Lord. My whole being waits. And in his word, I put my hope. And David himself provides another example for us in Psalm 13. The exact nature of of David's problem that he's experiencing, the cause of his anguish, is not known. But we can see that he is in deep anguish by his words. David writes, How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. And my enemy will say, I have overcome him and my foes will rejoice when I fall. This is not what David expected. But here's how David responds. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise, for he has been good to me. So how can David have such trust? Well, his life was built on a firm foundation. He had a love to God for who God is in himself. And so when, his, when David's circumstances led him to doubt, he could stand firm because he stood on God's word. And so this Advent, as we reflect on this season of expectation, let us, like women, or like David, be men and women after God's own heart. Let us trust in the promises of our God, trusting in Jesus' return and his eternal reign over his people. And should our own life experience cause us to doubt, and it will, let us bring those doubts to God reminding ourselves of and praising God for his faithfulness to his promises. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we desire to be people after your own heart. We also desire to trust in your promises, your character, and your faithfulness more than we trust in our own experience. We know that we cannot do these things on our own, that we are completely and totally reliant on you. So help us, God, to trust in your plan and your word and bring us all peace this Advent season. Amen.